It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I am glad you're here. Imagine a professional basketball team, an NBA team. Usually has anywhere from 12 to 15 players in uniform, ready to play, even though only five players can be in the game at any one time. The rest are reserves. They swap in when players get tired out, need a break, certainly if there's an injury. The reserves are there so the team can stay strong. Now, imagine a team where only five guys show up to play. Over the course of the game, they're going to wear down physically and psychologically, probably. Maybe there's a twisted ankle, meaning that player must either play ineffectively through pain or go sit down, forcing the team to play a man short because they have no reserves. So what happens to that team? Well, they get dunked on severely. They lose big. They get blown out. They get crushed. Choose your expression. People with a mental disorder, or even just people struggling with a lot of mental stress, are like that poor team. They lack reserves. They don't have fresh energy when they need it. They don't have backups when faced with adversity. And they tend to lose. If that's you, it's not your fault. It's not weakness. You didn't make bad choices. You're just robbed is all. You don't have a bench. Kelly Williams-Brown is not a professional basketball player. She's a writer living in Salem, Oregon, just south of Portland. Kelly is the author of the book Adulting and popularizer of that term, meaning learning skills and doing things to make your adult life more functional and easier and more prosperous. In her new book, Easy Crafts for the Insane, the functionality and ease of adult life for Kelly breaks down as Kelly breaks down. Relationships collapse, medical problems emerge all over the place, and Kelly had been dealing with depression her whole life at this point, so she doesn't have the reserves to handle all of that. No one left on the bench. But she also comes up with kind of an unusual way to address the situation. Not solve it, but address it. She turns to origami and glue guns and crafts. A warning, there's conversation about suicide in this episode after the second break. The book begins as Kelly's marriage of only a few months is ending. He was the smartest person I've ever met. He was the funniest person I've ever met. He had a really strong sense of ethics and who he was. Um, not a depressed person, maybe a little neurotic, but like, but the thing is, is we could not get along for five minutes about anything ever. Even I mean, I, to the point where if I were to try now to recite what the arguments are about, I have no clue. I could not point to yeah. it. It was just conflict, grinding, and constant. Uh, when we were speaking about World War One off the air, and it did feel a little bit like trench warfare. Nobody was winning okay. and everyone was losing. Right, right. It was just a, a war of attrition going on. Pardon the dumb question, but if you'd known him since you were 15 and this had always been the case, why'd you marry him? Well, we we only dated for about four years before we got married. I mean, we haven't been together since we were 15. I, I do want to clarify okay. that. Um, you know, I married him because he was brilliant, because he showed me new ways to think about people in the world. 
because he was kind, because he really loved me truly, and I loved him too. Because throughout my 20s, there had been a lot of relationships that were good with good men, and I thought only a sucker would love me. So that sort of automatically disqualified anyone who who just really adored me and treated me well. And I had to have someone who would also kind of be shitty to me. I'm so sorry. Are we allowed mm. to use that language? Yes. Salty we language? We're required to use Oh, good, good. Because I, I have the mouth of the sailor, as, as you're soon going to find out. But yeah, I needed some part of me needed to be treated kind of badly for it to work. Because... Because there was a, that was already in yourself, so it needed to echo what you were already feeling about yourself? Yeah, I mean, if you spend your day thinking the most terrible thoughts about yourself, and then someone comes along and is like, wow, you're great. I mean, it would be the equivalent of having just eaten the worst meal you've ever had, and then someone's like, can you believe how delicious this is? And it's like, what is wrong mm. with you, buddy? Like, I don't, we are not on the same page about this. And I want to I want to be clear that he he did not tear me down. But he would pretty regularly do I think what maybe he felt like him putting me in my place. You know, and and for me it's like, oh, this person thinks I'm wrong all the time. So they've figured out what I haven't, you know? Right, right. Okay. So you have you have these arguments uh, leading up to and beyond the wedding, and then you leave. Then, like, what what makes you reach that point where you're like, eh, no more of this? So I didn't think I was leaving. I was on a book deadline, and what I thought was I'll just go down to Salem. I was living in Portland at the time, about 45 minutes away, and I can stay, you know, with a friend and just really focus on writing. You know, I finished my other book there, so I'll finish this one there, and I'll be out of my element. Because I do, I'm, I'm one of those weirdos, I cannot write at home. I have to be mm. in a coffee shop. So this was like the equivalent of like a coffee shop for weeks where I sort of felt uncomfortable. And then during the course of this, I was talking to an older friend who was in her 50s. And I was sort of laying out all the reasons that I was unhappy in my marriage, which I really was. I, I thought you know, all these crazy thoughts like um, the problem is me. I just need to meditate and be more Zen and more accepting of having these fights. Or, you know, my grandmother didn't have a happy marriage, but she had a very happy life nonetheless. Uh, or I would, I would like pour through for first person essays about people who thought they married the wrong person, but it turned out that they married exactly the right person. And I was like, yeah, maybe maybe that's me, you know? Or even maybe I could just stay and have a couple of kids and then co-parent with him. And those are not fair thoughts to have about your spouse. Those aren't good thoughts to have about yourself. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that way of thinking of, it, it's based on the deep self-deprecation to think that it's probably all my fault. If I could just change something, then... I know, yes. And it'll be okay. If I just yeah. twist and contort a little bit more, I'll bet they're... <laughs> granted, I've been twisting and contorting for five years now, and I ha that hasn't worked. But maybe yeah. this time. Only I could stop being so wrong all the time. <laughs> a lifelong affliction, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh boy. 
Well, I want to cover all the things that that happened as you know after after this ends because that it leads off the book. It leads off Easy Crafts for the Insane is is this marriage ending. So here's what I what I have written down. Let me know if I've missed a, anything huge. There was a friend group that formed and collapsed. A new relationship formed and collapsed. Trump got elected. Father diagnosis of cancer. Death of grandmother and cat and fracturing three out of four limbs in unrelated incidents. Do I got that about right? Yeah, the only the only even slight correction is that the friend group that dissolved had been in place for almost a decade. So it was not newly okay. formed. It was a newly formed. That, yeah, it was just a collapse. Yeah. Yeah, a collapse okay. of very serious, very close friendships. It was a time. It was it was a doozy, I'll tell you what. It's a long extended time. So so you go you go into uh, a, a couch state, and what did this depression look like? How did how did it emerge, and how did it present? As the doctors say, well, uh, I had my first depression when I was fifteen, so it wasn't a total shock that I was depressed. Um, it really set in. So, sort of within the space of a month and a half, maybe Trump was elected, which really sent me into a tailspin. I'm sure no one else felt that way. It was only me. It was a very unique feeling, but I was terrified. I was horrified. I felt like I had been thrust into some bizarre reality that I'm not going to say waking nightmare, but not, not that. Um, And then right after that, I fell down and I broke my right elbow. And then about two or three weeks after that, I fractured and dislocated my shoulder under mysterious circumstances that I couldn't figure out until later. So it was really when I had no arms. Um, I would say that was actually kind of a natural depression to fall into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Very motivated. Right. Well, and I think uh, being injured in general, even if it's something, quote unquote, not serious, like a broken bone, I think we sort of underestimate how extremely difficult it is to go, you know, from being able-bodied I have the privilege of being able-bodied and, you know, use of all limbs to to not, to having a disability that is, you know, pretty serious, even if temporary. I was really moved by the description of um, what happened on the second injury. So you already have one arm in a cast, and then you've got this horrible pain in your other arm, and and you go to the hospital. Can you talk about how you were received at the hospital and what, what that was? I can. Um, so... I woke up in in terrible pain, the worst I'd ever been in, but also kind of confused. And so I get to the hospital and they're asking me what's wrong. And I just say, my my arm hurts, my arm hurts. And they're like, you know, the broken one? I said, no, the other one. And they're like, what happened? And I said, I don't know. And so I don't know if they thought I was drunk or pill-seeking or what, but they x-rayed my elbow. The elbow looked fine. And then the physician's assistant was like, well, I mean, you know, you're, nothing's broken, so I need you to follow up with your primary care physician. And I started to sort of lose it. And I was like, no, 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 please, please, you cannot discharge me from this hospital. Something is terribly, terribly wrong with me. And she just said it again. She said, I need you to follow up with your primary care physician, and if something's wrong, he'll find it. And I, I started crying. I was like, please, please, please let me have a second opinion. And she's like, you need, you need to go. And I said, well, what if I refuse to leave? And she said, well, then you'll be trespassed and uh, then arrested by the Salem Police Department. 
Um, so I don't really remember this very well, but my friend was there with me and apparently there was a security guard, like not right behind us, but within, you know, 10 or 15 feet. Um, and it was a long weekend, so it took a while until my doctor's office was open again. And then he said, did they x-ray your shoulder? And I said, no, they did not. And he said, well, I'm sure they would have found that, but let's do that anyway. So the punchline here is that my, my shoulder had been dislocated the whole time. And also the top of it, like a little piece of size, kind of like walnut had just, just sort of loosey goosey, which is not how you In want the your bones to night. be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was a mystery. It's a mystery. Um, and it was uh, kind of, in its own way, a little fun. Like, I love a good mystery, but none of my mysteries ever have any kind of real stakes, but this one did. Um, and I was like, did someone break in and dislocate my shoulder and then give me some sort of drug where I wouldn't remember it? Did I somehow get super drunk and fall down the stairs but injure nothing but that? Um, and eventually... The other clue was that I started having a lot of neurological problems. I wasn't – I would think about a pen. I would want a pen. I know what a pen is. I use pens all the time and I would say fork instead. And I wouldn't remember anything that happened um, more for more than maybe 30 seconds a minute. Very goldfish brain. And I was like, hmm, this is an awful lot like the other time in my life I've had a seizure where I felt like all the little bits of my brain were just dumped out on the ground I had to slowly gather them up. Um, and and more subtle things about me too were different. Um, one of the most sort of existentially terrifying for me personally was that I wasn't funny. Mm. Which, you know. You've always been the funny one. I mean, I'm, I, I'm an amusing girl. You know what I mean? I'm, sure. I've got a joke or ten. And I'm sure you know too, you know, when you're, when you're kind of going back and forth with someone and they say something funny and then you think, okay, now it's, you know, now I'm going to add to it, you know, yes, and whatever it is. And I would laugh at their joke. I would know their joke was funny, but then I would open my mouth and nothing would come. Mm. Just like reaching down a hole and nothing, you know, and expecting expecting to find the thing I found literally every other day of my life and it not being there. So you had had a seizure and then failed to remember an injury that dislocated your shoulder? Yeah, probably what happened was that I, I probably, I had a pretty high bed and I had um, hardwood floors. And so I probably fell out of bed with a very stiff body directly onto my shoulder. Because uh, that was the other thing is the orthopedist was like, I was like, did I sleep on it wrong? And he's like, look, I reset football players' shoulders and they don't look like this. Like, this looks like you were in a car accident. Yeah. Parts don't fall off when you sleep wrong. Right. As I understand. Right. You know, you, yeah. you get a crick in your neck sometimes or sometimes yeah. you dislocate your shoulder and break off the top of the humerus. It's like, you know. Yeah, see, that's the problem why you couldn't make jokes is your humor is Oh, oh, John. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so at this point, then you, both arms are disabled, and I imagine you're in a great deal of pain. Yes. Uh, or you're, and so, and this is something I want to ask about because a lot of people have, have who have been in chronic pain situations that led to a real huge depressive episode. Or like, you know, you you don't get it until you've been through this level of pain for, for this length of time. How did that play into it? How did that play into this crashing depression that emerged? Well, I mean, with pain, um, and I, I use the example of, you know, stubbing your toe. Think about the 45 seconds after you stubbed your toe. What's on your mind? It's not 
this like dipshit who's talking about their nice weekend who, when you haven't stubbed your toe, is your best friend or your partner. Right now, they do not understand the emergency that is your toe. And you feel your toe the way you hear, you know, a, a fire alarm. And when it's that all the time, there's not a lot of room for other stuff. And, and you compound that with the fact that you, you're very tired because your body is trying to knit itself back together. Like it, it takes an unbelievable amount of energy for your body to heal itself. You are so acutely aware of what you cannot do, especially without arms. There's a lot of things that require arms, John. You'd be surprised, the percentage. I, I, I'm guilty of not thinking about that during all the times my arms work perfectly fine. Well, you know, I, I there's a Kermit the Frog song called I Love My Elbows. And at this point in my life, I've actually broken both elbows in the same way. So I listen to the song when I'm like feeling down and I'm like bend my elbows and I'm like, you know what? I've got elbows today. So that's, it could be worse. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, marriage had collapsed. Trump was was in. You had had these injuries. You had this chronic pain. You had this lack of use of arms. Is that when the this monster depression just started sinking his teeth? In? Yeah. Yeah. It was – I mean, it had really started with Trump uh, and, and got worse from there. You know, I – after the election, I laid in bed for four days um, and – I got out of bed after that, but I didn't really feel like it. And, and, but it just, it kept growing and growing. And the other thing that was happening simultaneously is that I got med fatigue, which I've been on Zoloft that had been working well for me. It was nice and balanced for four years. It was, you know, it, it, you know, like all medication, it's not a happy pill. It doesn't change my life, but it allows me to feel happiness when things are happy and sadness when things are sad. And, and now I was just feeling nothing, which is – I mean, sometimes I would have enough energy to think about how dreadful I was and also how dreadful the world was, you know, I, I, equal opportunity. Uh, but mostly I just felt tired and like not existing. Everything, everything was in black and white. The things that bring me joy on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a lot. Like I actually take a, a great deal of joy in small things around my life and people, but nothing made me happy. It was just maybe a tiny bit of temporary relief and then back to it. What did that mean for elements of your life, like your, your uh, social relationships with friends, romantic relationships, work? Like how were those all affected? Well, it's, I mean, it poorly I think it's yeah. the, the adversely. Yeah, not perhaps. not well. It didn't improve anything. Um, you know, my mom jokes, and, and it's actually not a joke. It's just a statement of fact. You know that when she comes and visits me in my house, is kind of messy. Um, she always gets a little bit worried because that's that's one of the things that happens. It's like I'm I'm a naturally pretty messy person, but then I keep it in check. You know, but when I stop doing that, that's the problem. And and it's a it's a similar lack of I mean I hate to say lack of performance it makes it sound like you know my life as a corporation which it is certainly not but just everything is left out in the rain without a cover and it it gets worse it gets rusty it gets run down it's neglected you know so were you were you working on a new book at this point, or were you working? Are you writing for somewhere? Funny story with that. So I had a book coming out that was written in a very different world, 
before Trump was, I mean, I've avoided the man my whole life, but unfortunately, you know, he existed, but not the way he existed after November of 2016, but it's called Gracious. And I had interviewed all these wonderful older women in their 70s, um, you know, about how you really make other people feel comfortable, how you really acknowledge the humanity, not only of others, but also yourself, you know, how you sort of do the very important work of remembering that everyone is just as human as you are, you know, and you don't know where someone's been in the past 20 minutes or 20 years, you know, so, you know, kind of like how, how the intersection of, I guess, like sort of a Zen mindfulness and manners. So you're working on this book. You've talked to all these older women, poised older women. And I'm just, I'm failing spectacularly in my own life to do those things. And, you know, the book was supposed to, I mean, it did. It came out the May after Trump was elected. The night he was elected, I called my editor. And I said, could we cancel it? And she said, no, that's not really how books work. And she's like, maybe we'll need it more than ever. And I was like, yeah, maybe. But, you know, these these qualities that I thought were really the most important ones that he, a human could, you know, sort of aim at now felt like a relic of a different time. Plus, um, I was supposed to be promoting my book, but I didn't have any arms, uh, which, again, limiting, you know, for a lot of activities. Tours and interviews. and Yeah. Like you know, this book that... I liked and I cared about, but I hadn't been able to do that great of a job on because of all of my own bullshit. Just sort of was born and nobody cared. Now, can you predict how Kelly reacted when this book she had worked hard on was released to just crickets, to nothing, like it never happened? What's she going to do? That's in a moment. Back with Kelly Williams Brown, author of the new memoir, Easy Crafts for the Insane, a title I love a lot. Before the break, Kelly's previous book, Gracious, had just come out and flopped. How do you think she reacted? And I didn't even care, you know? I didn't care that it, that that happened. Let's, let's explore that a little bit, because I think that might surprise people, depending on how much they know about depression. A book is a ton of work, and it takes years and years and years, from selling the idea to researching and writing it, doing all the the lead-up. It comes out, and it's a dud. And you're not sad about that? You feel nothing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I was very lucky. My My first book that I wrote, Adulting, sold very well and honestly continues to sell very well. It's in its second edition. It's been translated into like 14 languages. It was a New York Times bestseller. You know, so there's always going to be a little bit of a sophomore slump. But yeah, writing a book is brutal and it's personal and it's hard. And it, you know, like speaking of things that like have a deleterious effect on your friendships and social life and home cleanliness and all of that, uh, books in uh, Clinty D might not be quite so far apart. But yeah, I just, because I didn't care about it anymore, because I didn't care about anything. And of course, my book was a failure because I'm a failure. And I tricked people into thinking that I wasn't a failure or that I had interesting thoughts. And now everyone could correctly assess that, you know, I'm not and I don't. 
So you've got the the filter on at this point. You've got the lens through which everything in the past was terrible, everything in the present and future must also be terrible. Well, I also had some really dark thoughts. I mean, I have my own theology and cosmology and it's involved and does not follow any particular dogma. It's a, it's a big old mishmash, but you know, part of me kept thinking like this is what God does to women who leave their husbands pushes them down and breaks their arms, makes Trump the president. And I use he, I don't, I don't think God is a man or a woman. You know, they, they make books that nobody cares, you know, nobody care about your book. I mean, to me, it all made logical sense that I was doing penance for having left my marriage. And you believed that? I did at the time. I mean, I believed a lot of incorrect things at the time. Um, yeah. You know, you, one always does. But is was that a kind of, geez, maybe maybe this is happening, like entertaining it, or was it? Yes, this is this is the fate that I deserve. This is happening on purpose. Somewhere in between, uh, I I couldn't want you know, and like I would say something like this to my mom, and she'd be like, "You know, that's not how God works," and I was like, "I know that's not how God works," but. When you don't have any arms, when you are lying in bed terribly depressed, when your book has gone nowhere and done nothing all these years and all these – more importantly to me, all these women that I had let down, that I had failed to properly tell their stories and get their ideas, which are so amazing, out to the world. And Trump was president and, you know, it – it was hard not to feel like we were being, you know, I don't know if you remember like the first crazy couple months, you know, like the Muslim travel ban at the airport and Sean Spicer screaming at people and, you know, it, it was really hard to think that I was in God's good graces. I'll put it that way. Yeah. It was hard to imagine life continuing in that way. Well, I, I mean, I always chalk a lot of this up to how long that voice has been in your head. Mm -hmm. Cause like I can, you know, I can point to things that I know indicate I am loved or worthwhile or successful or, you know, at least human and worthy of, uh, you know, rights and respects and capable of affection and, and receiving affection from others. But the voice that says, no, you're not, you actually suck. You know, you're, you're, you know, deep down, you're, you're a fraud and you know it. That voice is, goes back longer than any other relationship that I have. And so it's, it's the heart and it sounds the most like mine. It's still, it's still a, a distortion, but it's been there for so long that when everything else breaks down, it's sometimes the only thing left. You know, I've actually never told this story before, and I don't think I even sort of got it until just now. But when I was three, um, my Granny Barb was my favorite, favorite human in the world. Uh, still is, even though she's dead. But when I was three, I went to her and I said, Granny Barb, have I done something really bad? Have I ever done something really bad? And she said, no, of course you haven't. Why do you think that? And I'm like, I'm just sure that I've done something very bad. And, you know, I mean, that's a... Probably a concerning thing 
to come from a three-year-old. And I couldn't even point to like, you know, and I know that feeling now of like, I've done something really bad. What have you done? I don't know, but it's bad and it's going to be figured out. There's that fundamental rot that you need to, to overcome. And it's, I mean, that's part of depression management is just facing up to that fucker all the time, you know, and they're going to be there tomorrow saying that same stuff and, and. You know, again, that's, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I think there's, you know, I, it's one of the things I try to explain to people who've never encountered depression themselves, like just how persuasive that can be. I mean, it really is. And, it, you know, even people who don't have depression can understand the illogic of feelings. I mean, feelings, you know, are, are just weather inside you. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. It's not a logical thing. It's a descriptive thing. You know, and we've all had thoughts that we objectively know are not true. And yet emotionally to us, they're very true. You know, you, you talk about the small voice, something that has helped me a lot, you know, and this is a, a big part of a lot of 12-step traditions is, you know, kind of remembering that depression is sort of by nature a very inward and self-involved thing. And so when I start to get those voices, sometimes I think, mm, you're thinking a lot about yourself right now. What if we go check and see how a friend's doing? You know what I mean? Or or I, I literally think I'm having a mean thought about myself. And then if I do it again, I, I think I'm having a mean thought about myself. If I do it over and over and over, I realize how dull I am being. Just variations <laughs> on a theme. <laughs> like it's not yeah. interesting. It's not productive. Let's change the channel. Yeah, Let's see seriously, what else is this on. is this is not entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, the thoughts, the those those feelings that you have. That's the movie, but you're the screen. That's the clouds, but you're the sky. Those are the things that that are projected up and seem very real, and then they then they will drift. Yeah. <laughs> Another yeah. movie will show. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in this depression pivoting here a little bit, what role did crafts play? So, you know, as we were just talking about, just the relentlessness of depression and how it, that thought is just going all day. And for me, what I found is that by doing something relatively simple with my hands and just really focusing on that, that was you know, it could, it can almost be a form of meditation where you're clearing your mind and you're just focusing on this one little thing and you're just making this one little stitch or this one little fold. And we're going to do that one. We're going to try to do it well. And then we're going to go on to the next one. And, you know, my, I don't really make my crafts to give to people or I certainly don't want them in my house. Um, that's for sure. Uh, people enjoy my crafts. They, you know, people seem to be very happy when they get them, but like, that's not, that's not the why of it. The why is the making. And um, a family friend who's an artist told me that. She's like, you know, it doesn't really matter that much kind of how I feel about it afterwards. Like maybe I'll like it immediately afterwards and then not after time. Or maybe I hate it at first but like it afterwards. And she's like, but that that's not why you did it. You did it for the doing of it. So then were the crafts you were doing um... – I mean, it's it's easy crafts for the insane is is the name of the book. Were you looking for things that you didn't have to learn that you weren't trying to figure out that you could just sort of do idly? 
Yes. Um, although I, I did teach myself some things as well. Um, and I do want to mention, I'm, I'm concerned that people are going to think this is a craft book. This is a right. uh, kind of funny, dark memoir type thing interspersed with crafts. And as I say, yes. right on the cover, they are easy crafts. I would not necessarily call them good crafts. I would not call them beautiful crafts. I would not call them we're impressive crafts. We're not going crafts. after an Etsy kind of thing here. No, we're we're, we're doing we're, we're doing crafts together that a seven year old could do. Um, we're filling the minutes of the day with something else to do with our brains. Right, exactly. We are focusing on making a tiny yarn puff, perfectly spherical, so we don't fantasize about driving into the highway median. Yeah. 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 It's that kind of crap. You know, the normal kind. <laughs> the normal kind. That's why everyone so, crafts, right? So this was at a time when you, you write about like you're you're laying on the couch, you're you're t- watching too much MSNBC, you're getting uh, takeout delivered, and you're not writing. You as a writer are not writing at all, but you're making little stars all the time. So is that a process of of just self-maintenance? Is that an attempt to be healing? Are you hoping that this will make things better? What What's the thinking behind Well, some of it, uh, you know, some of it is uh, partially ADHD, which is another fun, fun little fact I bring to the table about myself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for me always, like having something to do with my hands sort of quiets things down, slows things down a little bit. Beyond that, I mean, I don't think I don't know why I was crafting so compulsively. And I can get you a nearby bowl of Lucky Paper Stars so okay. you can see them. Uh, this is a bowl. Yes. There are multiple bowls, okay? So as you can see, it's quite a bit of stars. That's a lot of stars. It's a lot of stars. And How many bowls like that do you have? Probably, like, I guess if I was going to pour them out in a decorative bowl like that, like three or four, I give them away a lot. Like anytime. There's a few thousand in there, right? Yeah. Certainly. There, I mean, it's a quick craft. Uh, and once you learn it, it's just sort of something you, you do with your hands. I joke that I like really missed my calling, like in the ancient times, being a seed sorter, like just someone who sits around and sorts seeds all day. I think that would have been very good for my mental health as well. Um, there you go. But but yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been someone who crafted, but but and and looking back over my life, I see that the times when I really was kind of doing it compulsively where... I couldn't not craft were also some of the saddest and darkest times in my life. When I'm doing well, I still will do little things here and there, you know, and I still like, I love to make people presents. I'll, I make a lot of embroidery, you know, if somebody has a baby or for Christmas or what have you. And I love making people Valentines. But in terms of just, I'm making a craft, it's not really for anyone. It is just for me. Those are always the times when I'm really depressed. And it's not an attempt to cheer yourself up? I mean, it must be self-soothing on some level, you know? I mean, I, th- I think a lot of what we do when we're depressed is, you know, various misguided efforts to alleviate the pain. Certainly, this is a better choice than heroin. Yeah. You know, it, it's never been a conscious, I will do this and I will feel better. It's, I have to do something so... I still feel like I exist because I don't want to exist. Nothing makes me happy. I am so fundamentally not myself. I am, I am, you know, 93 centimeters away from myself is one of my favorite little French animated shorts goes. Mm. 
Yeah, in between um, in between the old show and getting this new show up and running, I was uh, I went through an understandable um, sort of patch and uh, got really really hooked on very complicated jigsaw puzzles because Ooh. it was just something that if I was doing that, then I wasn't pondering myself right. and the future and justice and and all these things and. And then, you know, I'd, I'd put the last piece in and my, you know, my kids would be like, yeah, you got the last piece in. And then I'd just crumple it all up and put it back in the box. And they're like, what? <laughs> Why do you, you want to say that? I'm like, well, I, just, I got what I needed. Out of no, absolutely. Like a lot of my crafts go right in the recycling. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and it's, you're right. It's, it's the pondering. And I think the more insurmountable it feels to look outward at your life, the more I find that, like, God, cheesy does it sound, I did not mean to do this, but, like, looking down at my hands instead becomes a much more attractive option. Because in the world of crafts or in the world of jigsaw puzzles, it's very simple. There's kind of a right and a wrong. You know, if you know how to do it, you can just do it consistently, and you can empty your mind of those vicious thoughts for a minute. You write in the book about different ideas that you had and whether they were good ideas or bad ideas. And you list the idea of ending your life as a zero out of a hundred on the good idea scale. It's the worst idea. And this was the one that you acted on. Coming up, Kelly makes a bad choice. Since the dawn of time, screenwriters have taken months to craft their stories. But now, three Hollywood professionals shall attempt the impossible. Break a story in one hour. That's right. Here on Story Break, I, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, the creators behind award-winning shows like Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Now, an awesome movie starts with an awesome title. I chose The Billionaire's Marriage Valley. Mine was Christmas Pregnant Paradise. <laughs> okay, next we need a protagonist. So I've heard Wario best described as libertarian, Mario. <laughs> and of course, every great movie needs a stellar pitch. In order to get to heaven sometimes you gotta raise a little hell <laughs> that's the tagline check out story break every week on maximumfun.org or wherever you get your podcasts hey i'm jordan morris creator of the max fun scripted sci-fi comedy podcast bubble we just released a special episode of bubble to celebrate the launch of our new graphic novel at sf Sketchfest in 2019 we recorded a live show with allison becker eliza skinner mike mitchell christella alonzo and special guests gene gray jonathan colton jesse thorne nick weiger and a bunch of other cool folks we suspect he'll show signs of mutation when in a state of excitement. Now, Annie matched with him on Tinder, so she's going to act as the honeypot. I do enjoy being called a honeypot. Hey, you know what's better than honey? Gravy. <gasps> oh, yeah, can I be the gravy sack? Out now on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get podcasts. And pick up the graphic novel at your local bookstore today. Back with Kelly Williams-Brown. This part of our episode talks about suicide. If you'd rather not hear that part, skip ahead about 5 minutes and 40 seconds. 
I asked Kelly where her mind was at this point. Well, it's interesting because, um, as I said, I am someone who has, you know, had major depression my whole life, starting, you know, when when I was young. Uh, I'm I'm used to it. Uh, suicidal ideation and actions had never been part of it before this, um, and I I think part of it was that, you know, I I really did experience sort of trauma after trauma after trauma, and and the whole book takes place in an eighteen month period, so. It's it, things were kind of coming fast at me. And then on top of that, something very bad happened, which is that I was put on a new line uh, antidepressant and it sent me into a mixed manic state. So, which again was a new thing for me. So I had. Um, Could you explain what that is, a mixed manic state? So, in my case, the way that it sort of played out uh, was that I was experiencing both symptoms of mania and depression. So I had all the darkness of the depression and those terrible thoughts and feelings about myself, but all of a sudden I also had a ton of energy and impulsivity and sort of like a real drive to like get up and go and, you know, act on things quickly, certainly a lack of, um, or, you know, being very uninhibited. And so those two together ended up being a terrible uh, thing for me. And I, I talk in the book about like some of the other stuff that happened when I was in that manic state, including losing the friendships. But but yeah, I it was so fast too. That's the thing that terrifies me is that, you know, if you had asked me that morning, are you suicidal? I would have been like, no, what are you talking about? But if you had asked me, have you been idly pondering for months how if someone wanted to kill themselves using the items in your house, they could do it in a very effective and lethal way? Totally different question. That's a that's just a hypothetical that everyone surely has had. I mean, who who hasn't been there, right, John? So, you know, and and I had a bad night that tied specifically to the friendships that I had lost. I was feeling incredibly bereft. I, as they put it later in the hospital, um, catastrophic loss of chosen family, uh, which spoke much more to my grief than my friends don't like me anymore and I don't understand why. And that was that. Probably between five and 10 minutes from I can't handle this anymore and tonight was the very worst night to action. And that's the terrifying thing is that that's how it happens a lot for people. In, in the book, it seemed almost absent-minded, almost like autopilot or just, you know, it's, it just seemed like falling off a log for you to, to do this monumental act. Is that you preserving your privacy in writing the book by not going into a lot of detail about that? Or, or was that what it was really like, where it just, you know, you just sort of fell into this, this huge decision? Well, like I said, I had definitely put a lot of thought into if someone probably me really wanted to die and be sure they were going to do it, how, what would they do? And then I had settled on a solution. I was like, yes, that's a great solution. No warning bells going off in your head when you're thinking that? 
I mean, but my life was nothing but warning bells, John. You know, <laughs> like it's I, hard to hear. It's hard to think of them as warning bells when it's all you hear all the time. Yeah, my my life had been, you know, truly a, a fire alarm for eighteen months, and I, I was manic. I didn't have my chosen family near me. I was totally alone. And I could not imagine what life would look like without, you know, those people in it. Same way I can't imagine, like, what my life would look like without my sisters in it. It just, I don't know, you know. And... It feels like annihilation. I'm sure. Yeah, it does. And and that I had caused it. I mean, I don't get into the reason that, like, the backstory of why those friendships dissolved. Um, it's incredibly personal. It's not all my story to tell. And you know, it, I, I'm sure that's kind of frustrating to a reader to just be like, "You just have to come along," and and I'm not going to tell you why. Um, but I had a really bad night with um, a mutual friend saying something pretty cruel to me. And I was like, that's it. We're done. Here we go. I'm glad you're not done. You go from the, the hospital to an inpatient program and you receive a diagnosis there. Tell us about that. Sure. So um, something that was really interesting is that a psychiatrist, you know, I talked to him for like an hour and a half. It was pretty much the most I've ever talked to any doctor in my life. And he said, you know, one of the most difficult clinical distinctions to make is between women who have ADHD and depression and women who have ADHD and bipolar too. Because a lot of the effects the ways that bipolar 2 manifests itself in women can look a lot like hyperfocus and a lot like attention deficit disorder. A lot of times when the mood is dysregulated, you are more likely to be depressed. And a lot of times, you know, if you're having maybe mild manias, it might not be causing a problem. It might look like someone who is a little talkative and has a little too much energy, but, you know, is not, you know, I... And I still don't know. I have a, I think because that was my only pronounced mania episode, I think that I have depression and ADHD. I don't know. Maybe I do have bipolar too, which for some reason, I don't even know why, but I was like, bipolar too. Good Lord. Like I was fine with ADHD and depression and disordered eating and blah, 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 blah. But bipolar too, that's a bridge too far. Um, I know I attempted suicide, but let's not get out of hand. <laughs> Did I attempt suicide in a <laughs> mania? Sure. Sure. Do I have Granted. <laughs> yes. And, but. <laughs> oh, man. So you got help. You, you got some rest and you got some help, you know, enough to, enough to write a, a book, certainly. And, and, uh you know, have functional arms and go out and talk about the book. Um, I mean, were there not a deadly global pandemic to pile on top of this 
this uh, Sunday of misery that you had constructed. How are you doing now? And what does health look like now? What does your health program look like now? So all the events of the book took place, it's about three, almost exactly three years ago, actually. We're pretty close to my date event going to the hospital. Um, And this is a very unpopular opinion, but um, I did very well during the pandemic because uh, I had already been a depressed agoraphobe housebound by health concerns. So I was pretty ready. I, I knew a few tips of the trade. Oh, yeah. No, it's our. It was our moment to shine. Finally, these talents. Well, you know, they say they say the depressives did so well because finally the world was matching our expectations. Yeah, and and then they all wanted to steal our ideas and then go back to their extroverted lives. I know. Yeah, I know. And they were like, "Oh, this is such a bummer." And it's like, "Well, I'm glad you're here, and now you know," <laughs> which is not something I should think. It's not something I thought. I don't want anyone to be inside against their will. I want to be clear that I am not pro quarantine. Pro, like recreational quarantine. Um, but no, actually, like over the past two and a half, three years, my health is better than it's ever been. And I, I credit a lot of that to having a really good psychiatrist. Um, for me, medication is a big part of keeping me even keel. And having someone who knows me, who I go and see regularly, you know, I always thought of a psychiatrist as just like, an expensive, inaccessible therapist, which is really not what they are. They are people who specialize in, you know, a a biology that we still don't totally understand. Like we don't understand why a lot of, you know, mood medication works. It just does. Um, So that's been part of it. I really threw myself into making a community that wasn't just reliant on like two people. You know, I live in a smaller town, which I love, and I do it on purpose because I can build that kind of community here more easily. You know, it was canceled by the pandemic, but Girl Scout troop um, and a trivia night. I was troop leader and and had my little trivia night and my regulars. Um, I know all of my neighbors on the block, and we all get together regularly. I reached out and re-strengthened relationships that I had sort of let fall by the wayside. I'm in a really happy relationship with a good person that loves me and that I love and that respects and that I respect. Um, and I don't think I would be in a position to have any of that had I not gone through so much because it really makes me so grateful about everything. There is nothing that I take for granted. I don't take for granted the fact I can walk. That's something we didn't actually mention is that after I got out of the hospital on my fifth shift at my job that I had gotten to get me out of my house, I, I tripped and uh, broke my ankle requiring surgery. That was, that, was, that was spiral fracture number three, right? Mm, uh, or fracture, fracture number, three. number three. Yeah, yeah. Spiral okay. fracture. I mean, we can, believe me, if you want to go deep on orthopedics, I feel like <laughs> I am a one-woman orthopedic helpline at this point. Like, people will call me and I'll be like, okay, first thing you're going to want to do is splint the toes together. They can't do a thing for a broken toe. Folks, Kelly will be uh, hosting our spinoff podcast, Ortho Mode. It's coming soon. uh... (laughs) Actually, though, one of the things that truly got me through my broken ankle and and being unable to walk for two months, which, again, limiting, was uh, online forum. The 
online ankle problem forum at patient.info <laughs> where I learned a lot of tips and tricks and, and also just got to commiserate with people who were going through the same thing and just be like, wow, this sucks so much. It sucks. Uh-huh. You're a little baby. You have to ask someone for everything. You have to ask someone to throw your, your Kleenex away for you. Otherwise, like all of your garbage just piles up right in the vicinity and you would not believe how much you produce until you ha- do not have the ability to throw it away. The book is Easy Crafts for the Insane, a mostly funny memoir of mental illness and making things. It is a memoir with crafts in it. Kelly Williams-Brown, thank you so much. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure to be here. Here's something fun. We have a special video, a depression mode video. We've never done this before. Kelly and I made a home crafting video. She from her home, me from mine. Kelly shows me how to make a fun little pom-pom puffy guy with googly eyes. She makes one and I make one. Kelly's turns out really good. As for mine, Kelly's turns out really good. Next time on Depression Mode, can the power of rock and roll help your mental health? Chelsea Erson, the host of the podcast Dear Young Rocker, joins us to talk about the liberation of plugging in and turning up and helping kids do the same. I had seen Darcy Retsky up there with a the bass and Melissa Aftermar. That's the place I had seen women looking badass. I hated that being a girl meant you were sensitive. I didn't want to be seen as sensitive. I wanted to be seen as tough and cool. And so when I saw women with a bass who looked like they were like commanding the stage and playing these deep notes that would get people to headbang, and and I just loved how the bass notes made me feel. And I said, I want to do that. I am making devil horn hands right now. I am banging my head. That was me. Remember, if people support our show through a small donation, we will continue to exist. If not, we won't. If you donate, you make Depression Mode, and thank you. If you haven't donated, it's easy. You can find a level that works for you. Keep us going. MaximumFun.org slash join. We love it when you recommend our show to friends. It might help them. And something that matters a lot, hit subscribe. Give us five stars. It won't take you any time at all. Write reviews if you can. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations happening. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free and always available. Text HOME to 741-741. Depression Mode is your show, too. Remember that. We take requests. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want us to tackle. Just send us an electric mail. Mode at MaximumFun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. We get inspiration for future stories. We collaborate with listeners. It's awesome. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I have notes and thoughts and discussions on all of our episodes there as they come out. Plus some fun and silly stuff, too. It's free to subscribe. I'm on Twitter at John Moe, all one word. Hello, Credits listeners. How are there so many people named Alan in the world when none of us has ever met a baby named Alan? Like, can you imagine? Here's my baby, 
named Alan. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer Hi, this is Adam Liebert-Johnson from Long Beach, California, and your struggle is valid. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.